This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Motion pictures made in the United States are, with few exceptions, produced in accordance with the provisions of a production code. A majority of the foreign pictures exhibited in theaters here likewise conform to these self-imposed industry rules and regulations. All the major producing and distributing companies in the United States and 99% of the others work with and through the Production Code Administration. Very few of the producers of English dialogue motion pictures now being publicly exhibited in theaters in the United States fail to make use of the facilities of the Code Administration. This service is rendered and this work conducted on a purely voluntary basis. No one is compelled to produce motion pictures in accordance with the code regulations. No attempt is made to force producers to accept the service of the Production Code Administration. As a result, however, of almost 15 years of day-by-day operations, during which time more than 6,000 feature-length motion pictures and twice as many short-subject films have been serviced by the Code Administration, there is evidence on all sides, a ready disposition to conform to the regulations of the Code and to be guided in large measure by the judgment and experience of its administrators. This effort to establish high principles of public responsibility for an art industry has been singularly difficult and significant because of the newness, nature, and variety of this remarkable medium of expression, which draws its raw material from all of drama, all of music, all of literature, and all of life. And because of the worldwide character of a consumer audience represented by an average of more than 85 million admissions a week in the United States, and in normal times, an additional estimated 150 million weekly in the rest of the world. Industrial democracy can no longer be taken for granted. It must be defended. The problem of our national economy very properly has been stated to be the problem of maintaining, to the highest degree, initiative, enterprise, and freedom in industry and in business. But these are rights that must be matched by equivalent responsibilities, moral, social, and economic. There is no real substitute for successful self-government in industry. There can be no permanent progress for a creative industry controlled in the interest of economic regimentation or political dictatorship. 
Yet, every error of judgment in the movies brings immediate criticism and inevitably jeopardizes the essential freedom of expression on which our democracy has been built. The motion picture industry in the United States is an important and significant case study of the economic, artistic, and social achievement of self-government in business. The development of high moral and artistic standards in motion picture production has vastly improved the supply of popular entertainment and raised the artistic stature of the screen. To this result, the vigorous and painstaking application of the motion picture production code to every process of film production, from the story to the finished production, has contributed immeasurably. Our experience indicates clearly that self-regulation is wholly consonant with freedom of expression for the motion picture art. None of the objectives toward which the industry must strive in carrying out its public responsibilities is outside the framework of self-discipline. An alive and responsible public opinion is the guiding force in this as in all systems of self-government. The motion picture public is not millions more or less conditioned to the suggestive and sensational. It is a universal public attracted to the motion picture theater by a vast variety of clean and artistic entertainment. The forward to the Motion Picture Production Code edition from 1944 to 1949. everybody, CJ here, recording this introduction in the wake of Hurricane Ian, or by the time it got to my side of the peninsula, Tropical Storm Ian. And for those of you who might be wondering, I did alright in this storm. It wasn't that bad by the time it got to the Atlantic coast of Florida where I live. It had already chewed up a lot of its energy going across roughly 120 miles of peninsula from, you know, the Gulf area where it made landfall to here. So by the time it got here, it was a tropical storm, and it wasn't that bad for us. Did provide some inconveniences here and there, but not that big of a deal at the end of the day. With hurricanes, of course, always wherever it makes landfall first is going to be the place hardest hit, and then as the storm moves over more and more land, it depletes energy and whatever. So, you know, my heart goes out to the folks in the area around where it made landfall. Obviously, it was a much bigger deal for them. And I'll just say again, for anybody who currently is considering relocating to Florida for kind of political, strategic, or other reasons, I would caution against living on the Gulf Coast, just because they tend to get direct hits by hurricanes more often than the Atlantic Coast. Not to say it doesn't happen in the Atlantic Coast, obviously it does, but it just, the Gulf tends to get more direct hits by hurricanes most of the time. And I say that as someone who loves the Gulf Coast of Florida, 
who actually likes the beaches there and the fishing there even better than on the Atlantic side. But the reason I don't live on the Gulf Coast and I just go over there to visit periodically is that I want to have a little bit less chance of a giant hurricane hitting my neighborhood directly. So maybe keep that in mind if you're thinking about relocating to Florida and trying to decide what area you might want to live in. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking a little bit about and sharing a bunch of excerpts from the so-called Hayes Code, which was the motion picture production code that existed in the United States from the mid-1930s until the kind of mid to late 60s. And this is going to be part one of a two-part little baby miniseries that originally was going to be one big episode. Originally, I wanted to talk about the Hayes Code, and then I wanted to talk about what I call the new Hayes Code, which is basically the rigid rules of wokeness and intersectionality and all of that that are completely straightjacketing most big-budget TV and movie productions and have been for years now, and that make so many of these things just completely boring and whatever. Now, obviously, the original Hayes Code and what I'm calling the new Hayes Code, they come from, in many ways, opposite ideological standpoints. But they illustrate to me the way that, regardless of where you're coming from ideologically, when you attempt to impose rigid standards and censorship and so forth on a creative endeavor like making films. It's going to drastically reduce the amount of creativity and it's going to tend to make most of what you're producing very predictable and very boring and, you know, relatively rare for it to have any great artistic or aesthetic value. So I was originally going to make one big episode where I went over the original Hayes Code and talked about it and then went into what I'm calling the new Hayes Code, but I ultimately decided for various reasons that I would break it into two parts, so that's what I'm going to do. So this is going to be part one, the old Hayes Code, and then part two will be the new Hayes Code. But before I launch into that, I have some very important announcements to make. One is that I'm starting to schedule some of the live stream stuff that I promised to supporters of my Indiegogo campaign at various levels. And so I've already scheduled the first DHP book club stream. It's going to be in late October. And the first book we're going to be talking about is a book that, in my opinion, is very, very interesting. And it's a book I only read for the first time a couple months ago or so. And it is by Montesquieu, who, of course, is most famous for his giant book, Spirit of the Laws, which I've read a bunch of pieces of, but haven't read the whole thing. It's a huge book. Montesquieu, if you don't know, big intellectual influence on America's founding fathers. But that's not the book we're going to read for the DHP book club for this month. Instead, the book we're going to read is a shorter one by him that I only recently got into. And the book is called Considerations on the Causes of the Greatness of the Romans and Their Decline. And you don't have to think too much creatively to realize, oh, there might be some really interesting and relevant and important stuff to where, oh, I don't know, the American Empire currently finds itself. In addition to that, as of recording this intro, I haven't officially scheduled it, still trying to figure out what day, but I am going to be putting in the schedule, my first just kind of general live stream, which is going to be for folks who supported the Indiegogo campaign at certain levels, and I also want to announce that I've added some additional benefits and some additional levels even to those who support the show on a monthly basis 
via Patreon or Subscribestar. So I'm hoping this will entice some people who aren't continuing supporters there to consider doing so, and maybe some people who already are to up their contribution. Now, one of the things I am planning on reviving that I haven't done in, you know, over two years because of how badly the COVID regime impacted my work situation is getting back to the so-called Dangerous History Lyceum or DHL production of audio history lecture courses. And I only put out two of those, I think, late 2019, early 2020, and then just got completely blindsided uh, by the amount of increase in my workload that the COVID regime imposed upon me. But I am planning on getting back into producing those fairly soon, and so those are available for people who contribute at least $15 a month via Patreon or Subscribestar. And the next one that I'm planning is going to be a lecture. Um, the course, the, the first course I'm making under the DHL banner is called Rise of the American Empire. And again, I did my first two lectures for it over two years ago. So those are sitting there. If you support me at 15 bucks a month or more via Patreon or Subscribestar. But the next installment I've got to make in that course, again, Rise of the American Empire, is going to be a lecture on the American Empire under the Articles of Confederation. Because I believe that one of the reasons that so many elite Americans in the late 18th century wanted to transition away from the Articles of Confederation and to the Constitution that we eventually got was that the Articles of Confederation were not suited to continual imperialistic expansion. And that's kind of what a lot of America's elite, not all, but what a lot of America's elites really wanted to do, is just continuously expand and take over as much of the continent as they could. And the Articles were so decentralized and created such a limited central government that it just simply wasn't a very suitable system to continuous imperial expansion. So anyway, that's coming um, hopefully either towards the end of this month or next month. In addition to that, another benefit for those who support me at $15 a month or more is you'll have access to live streams with me on even numbered months. So bi-monthly, and that can obviously mean twice a month or every other month. In this case, I mean it every other month. So that's an additional benefit that you now will have access to if you sign up for 15 bucks a month or more. In addition to that, the Master Scholar Warrior level of support, which is $25 a month, you'll get all the benefits of the lower levels of support, and you'll have access to, instead of every other month, every single month, live streams with me. And by the way, these live streams, I'm trying to schedule them at least two weeks ahead of time of when they're going to be, and I'm just picking a time that'll work for me that I hope will work for as many of my supporters as possible, kind of based on you know where people tend to live and whatever. But I also am planning on recording them and then sharing the link with people who couldn't make it, you know, in real time. And I might have it auto-delete after a week or something like that. We'll see. You know, I don't necessarily want to save every live stream forever, but these will be somewhat informal, kind of metaphorically fireside chats, me talking about, you know, what I'm up to, what's going on in the world, maybe, um, thoughts about various things. Obviously, history stuff is going to be in there, of course. So anyway, for 25 a month, you'll get access to the live streams once a month. 
And then I added a level at Patreon and Subscribe Star that I'm calling Grandmaster Scholar Warrior, and this is $50 a month. And for this, you not only get access to live streams every month, but you also get access to the DHP Book Club. And what I'm trying to do with this is to pick books that I think are really interesting, that in some way or another connect to a lot of the topics and themes I cover on this podcast, but I'm also trying to assign books for the book club that are, you know, maybe a little bit less well-known, even amongst the kind of people who would listen to this podcast, who are going to be, on average, I would guess, much more avid readers than most, and in addition to that, much more kind of heterodox and unorthodox thinkers than most, with, you know, a general tendency towards kind of libertarianish, in the broad sense of the word, uh, ways of thinking. So I'm trying to think of and assign books that connect, but that are likely that a lot of even well-read listeners of this show may have never read before and might not have even heard before. So anyway, I hope you'll consider, if you haven't, signing up to support this show on a continuing basis via Patreon or Subscribestar, and I also hope you'll consider, if you're at a lower level of support, maybe upping your membership and getting access to some of these perks as I'm finally uh, getting to the point in my transition to self-employment where I'm going to start cranking out more content, both, you know, for the general public, on the public feed, but also stuff behind the paywall for financial supporters of the show. All right, all that said, last thing before I launch into the meat of the episode is I've got my next 20 awesome individuals to thank and give shoutouts to by name, people who contributed 25 bucks or more via the Indiegogo campaign that bought me uh, my freedom. And again, I'm doing these in the order of people's contributions, not in terms of the order of how much they gave or anything like that, just, you know, over the couple of months or so the thing was running. And again, I'm just reading first or last name or pseudonym as it appears on my list of contributors. So, huge thanks go to the following excellent individuals for helping to launch me out of the rat race so I can do more of this stuff that you all love. Heather Risden. Cody Parrish, Philip Lavery, Lavery or Lavery, um, I apologize if I mispronounced it, D. Baincom, and I'm guessing that's some sort of a pseudonym, or it's a very exotic uh, one-name person, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing it, but uh, yeah. Matt Snow, Jacqueline Miller, Thomas Wajasik, and Thomas, please forgive me if I mispronounce your last name. James Watson. Lori Macy. John Pliball, or Plyball. Or maybe John P. Liball, I don't know. One of those, John, again, my apologies. Todd Bates. David Schwendinger. Charles Melchin. Len Hofferber. Damon Shopka. A.M. Silverman, 2000. Shop, just shop, so sort of like share, but shop. Lawrence Ludlow, Aaron Whitehead, and Andy Higginbotham, thank all of you very much for contributing to the Indiegogo campaign with 25 bucks or more and helping me go off the reservation.
So here's a very short kind of bird's eye bullet point overview of the Hayes Code for those of you who are not familiar with it. The Hayes Code was the nickname for what was formerly known as the Motion Picture Production Code. And this was actually a set of rules imposed by the American film industry on itself. And it was a classic case of they decided to censor themselves in order to avoid having the state directly censor them. So films or motion pictures, they followed a very similar pattern that you see for most new forms of media and communication in American history. And possibly in other countries as well. I just haven't looked into the details of it in a bunch of other countries to say. But basically, whether it's radio, whether it's film, whether it's later television, and then, you know, the internet and social media and all these sorts of things, usually what happens is it initially starts off unregulated by the state or virtually so. And there's a period of Wild West creativity. And all sorts of cool stuff happens. And then what usually happens is a combination of big corporations that want to control the new media. Because one of the things that drives the Wild West sort of situation in the early days of a new communication or media technology is not just that the government is usually little to not at all involved, but also that it's usually not in the early days dominated by like, you know, a handful of big corporations that you can count on one hand. Usually, it's much more decentralized, it's characterized by much more smaller players and, you know, smaller companies, etc. So there's way more freedom and there's also way more competition. And then what typically happens is a generation or so goes by and a handful of big corporations that want to lock down the industry in question team up with various, you know, politicians and government bureaucrats and things that want to control the industry for their own reasons. And they find, as is so often the case with giant corporations and big government, that their interests coincide and overlap way more than they don't. And that they have a lot more in common in terms of what they would like to happen with each other than either of them do with, you know, average consumers or smaller firms or, you know, companies in that field. So it's a classic case of regulatory capture. Now, of course, when an industry is going to be regulatorily captured, the people pushing it never are honest about why they're doing it. And instead they talk about, oh, we've got to protect uh, the consumer and all these sorts of things. And so for those purposes, grassroots citizen organizations pushing to regulate a given industry usually spring up. Sometimes they're genuinely bottom up in grassroots, but they quickly get co-opted, whether overtly or covertly, by corporate and state interests that are pushing them. And then, um, you know, when there's not a citizen grassroots genuine movement to co-opt and boost, they'll, you know, flat out create their own. And you can see this even with uh, the origins of something like the Federal Reserve System, where all these groups suddenly popped up in the early 20th century that were like, oh, the Citizens Reform Banking Group, or, you know, I'm making these names up, but there were organizations like that, that it turns out a lot of these organizations were actually being created and funded by people like the J.P. Morgan, you know, folks and other big banksters like that. 
And then once the giant corporations and the government team up in one way or another, sometimes it's, you know, more the government doing it. Sometimes it's more uh, the corporations doing it themselves, but at the urging or, or nudging or behest or prodding of government, sometimes it's close to a 50-50 split of who's doing it. But whatever the proportions may be, eventually some combination of big corporations and big government kind of cartelize the industry. They make it much less free. They make it much more homogenized. They drastically reduce competition and they drastically reduce freedom of expression and all that sort of stuff. And again, you see the same pattern with just about any industry of media or communication that you can think of. Again, at least in American history, and I'm assuming in most other countries of the world, you'll find a similar pattern too. And given how many of the most important modern technologies of communication and media originated in the United States, right? Whether it's radio or television or motion pictures, like, or the internet. I mean, all of these things were primarily or entirely invented by Americans. So I would assume even in other countries, probably the pattern looks the same, despite the fact that, you know, film was invented in America and not in, I don't know, Argentina. I would imagine when film first came out, probably in Argentina, it was relatively free. And then over time, uh, the government and big corporations of that country locked it down. So anyway, from the origins of motion pictures in the late 19th century until around about the 1920s. The film industry in America was virtually unregulated as far as content goes. But as you might expect in the kind of early 20th century heyday of progressivism version 1.0, and so many of those progressives were in favor, not just of more government regulation of the economy, but of people's morality as well. You know, not all progressives, for example, at that time were prohibitionists on the question of alcohol, and not all prohibitionists were progressive, but nonetheless, just to use that issue as an example, there was a huge amount of overlap at the time uh, between progressives and prohibitionists. And in general, the progressives of progressivism version 1.0 tended to be morality do-gooder police types to one degree or another. And so there was urging in the first couple decades of the 20th century from both, you know, grassroots citizen groups as well as from politicians to have more control and censorship over film. And in the first couple of decades of the 20th century, various states passed their own local censorship rules in the United States. I think um, a majority of states by around 1920, I, I believe, had passed censorship rules for their jurisdiction. Now, of course, this made it very inconvenient for Hollywood because Hollywood then had to worry about complying with each individual state's various rules. And so, as you might imagine, the big Hollywood studios much preferred it if they only had to worry about one set of rules for the entire United States. This is another pattern you see so often happening when in the U.S. you go from some industry, even if it's not related to communications or entertainment, when you go from some industry being left to the states to regulate, and of course, different states will have very different rules. But the biggest corporations in that industry, the ones that are doing business in most or all of the various states, they want one size fits all because it's more convenient for them. And so what typically ends up happening is if the feds do eventually get in on the game, 
More likely than not, what they'll end up doing is homogenizing the rules for that industry in the most restrictive direction. In other words, they'll tend to look at the most restrictive state regulations and adopt those as their basic guidelines in order to, you know, make everybody happy in the states that are the most up in arms over regulating that particular industry. And so it tends to push regulation most of the time anyway in a more restrictive direction when they're crafting the rules for the nation as a whole. And there are notable examples here and there, but the typical thing, again, is when some industry goes from being regulated state by state to being regulated by the feds, the feds tend to adopt the more restrictive regulations that states previously had, rather than the looser ones that other states might have had. So you had big Hollywood companies, for their own reasons of convenience, and profitability looking to make it one-size-fits-all nationwide as far as film regulation of content goes. Then you had various citizens and politicians also wanting nationwide regulations for their own, you know, kind of morality police do-gooder sorts of motivations. And then this all comes to a head with a big scandal in the 1920s having to do with the actor, famous actor of the time period, Fatty Arbuckle, who had a big scandal where he was accused of raping and I believe killing, at least in terms of manslaughter. I forget all the details. Um, I'm not going to get sidetracked into that here. This isn't, you know, the focus of this episode. And uh, you can look this up if you're interested in more of the details. I'm just going by memory here. It's been a while since I read or heard about this. But basically, an actor had a situation where he got, like, whacked out of his mind on booze or whatever, and then, I guess, woke up with a dead girl in his room, and he was accused of raping, and at the very least, you know, manslaughtering her. And it was a big scandal, and there was a trial. My understanding is he was eventually acquitted of the charges, but it didn't matter. It was a giant scandal. His reputation was ruined. I think he died soon after. Might have committed suicide. Uh, I don't remember. But this gave additional oomph to all the various groups and organizations that wanted to regulate the film industry. A lot of people were just saying, look, Hollywood is nothing but a bunch of degenerates, and they weren't entirely wrong, to be honest. But, you know, from that, they then wanted to move to, therefore, we should have nationwide censorship. So ultimately, the major players of the film industry at the time decided that they wanted to regulate and censor themselves when it comes to content both in order to, you know, maintain at least a little bit of control over things rather than just handing it over to the federal government. And then also, for kind of publicity purposes, they wanted to be seen as taking the lead of sort of cleaning up their own house in the public's eyes. And this is something you see in a lot of industries when there's some sort of a scandal that comes out, is very often it's the major players in the industry themselves who will come out and start to regulate themselves. Again, both to avoid having politicians and bureaucrats do it for them, and also to try to regain some positive image in the eyes of the general public, to be seen as trying to clean up their own house. So the biggest person pushing this, and who had the biggest impact on its content, was a guy named Will H. Hayes, who was the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America from the early 1920s until the mid-1940s, so for over two decades. This was the organization that would eventually morph into the Motion Picture Association of America. 
So the massive role played by Will H. Hayes in this whole thing is why the production code gets known as the Hayes Code. And it started with relatively modest and somewhat informal rules throughout the 1920s that the association would put out. And so the association in, I believe it was 1927, put out some rules for their members, which they referred to as a list of don'ts and a list of be carefuls. So here are the don'ts. These are the things that they said you just flat out cannot have in your film in any context or for any purpose. One, pointed profanity by either title or lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless they be used reverently in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Hell, S-O-B, damn, God, spelled G-A-W-D, so I guess God with a New York accent. And every other profane and vulgar expression, however it may be spelled. Two, any licentious or suggestive nudity, in fact or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. Side note, in the early to mid-twenties, there were a surprising number of risque films that came out in kind of like the flapper prohibition era, where you had sex and nudity that was at the very least heavily implied. Anyway, back to the list. Three, the, and again, remember, these are the don'ts. Three, the illegal traffic in drugs. Four, any inference of sex perversion. Five, white slavery. Six, miscegenation. Seven, sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Eight, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette. Nine, children's sex organs. Ten, ridicule of the clergy. 11. Willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. So, those are the don'ts. Under no circumstances in any context can you portray these things or mention these things. And then there's a much longer list called the Be Carefuls, meaning you can depict these things, talk about these things, whatever, but only in the right way and in the right context. So, one... The use of the flag. 2. International relations. Avoid picturizing in an unfavorable light another country's religion, history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry. 3. Arson. 4. The use of firearms. 5. Theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Having in mind the effect which a too detailed description of these may have upon the moron. And this is the exact words of the code. These are not my words. Six, brutality and possible gruesomeness. Seven, technique of committing murder by whatever method. Eight, methods of smuggling. Nine, third degree methods. Which, if you don't know, by the way, is an old school way to say torture. Ten, actual hangings or electrocutions as legal punishment for crime. Eleven, sympathy for criminals. 12. Attitude toward public characters and institutions. 13. Sedition. I guess that means no movies about the American Revolution, huh? Well, it's the be careful, so I guess if you somehow make it look like it's not really sedition, maybe you could do it. Back to the list. 14. Apparent cruelty to children and animals. Shouldn't it be children or animals? Makes it sound like if you're only showing cruelty towards one, it's okay, but if it's towards children and animals simultaneously, it's bad. Anyway, back to the list again. 
16. The sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue. 17. Rape or attempted rape. 18. First night scenes. And by the way, that is a euphemism for people consummating their marriage. 19. Man and woman in bed together. 20. Deliberate seduction of girls. 21. The institution of marriage. 22. Surgical operations. 23. The use of drugs. 24. Titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement or law enforcing officers. 25. Excessive or lustful kissing, particularly when one character or the other is a quote-unquote heavy. And if you don't know that term heavy, if you haven't seen, for example, one of my favorite movies, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where that term is used a bit in context, heavy is an old-fashioned term for criminal or villain in a movie. So again, that first list I went over are the don'ts, just under no circumstances. And then the second longer list is the be careful. So you can do these things, but you should really try and minimize them, avoid them if you can. And if you do, depict them only with certain, you know, context and limitations and blah, 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 blah. So this was sort of the rules for the major studios in the United States from the late 20s into the early 30s. So it's like, you know, they're incrementally upping the straitjacket, the, the censorship, the control. Then around the turn of the decade, some Catholics started to get involved too. a Catholic editor of a motion picture publication named Martin Quigley and a Jesuit priest named Father Daniel Lord created their own standards and submitted them to the motion picture corporations. And they started to have some impact on studio bigwigs. And eventually they drew up a highly detailed set of rules that was divided into two parts, one called general principles, where they just sort of sketched out like the big picture ideas of what films had to do and conform to. And then a much more detailed list called Particular Applications, which like really go into detail about what can and cannot be depicted and how it can be depicted and so forth. So all of the freedom in regard to portrayals of sex, violence, crime, and a whole host of other issues as they were depicted from kind of the origins of film until the early 1920s, those were being just phased out in American film. And what ultimately ended up resulting from this in the mid-30s, again, formally known as the Motion Picture Production Code, informally known as the Hayes Code, this is going to be the result. And there were some different versions of this that were, you know, promulgated during the period this was in effect, but in most regards, they're very similar to each other. But basically, the heyday of the Hayes Code was 1934 to 1968. During that time period, the vast majority of American-made films conformed rigidly to these rules. From 1934 to 1968. So for over three decades, this was the straitjacket in which American film had to operate. Perhaps not surprisingly, the vast majority of the films of this period are extremely boring and predictable and uninteresting. And yeah, a handful of movies were made during this period that were truly great films, but those are, you know, in a way, the exceptions that prove the rule that like, okay, yeah, if you could happen to come up with a way to tell a compelling and interesting story without going afoul of these rules, great, 
but most of the time, most writers and directors and so forth are not going to be able to do that when you place them in this restrictive of a set of guidelines. So now I'm going to share with you a whole bunch of excerpts. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I'm going to read a good chunk of it of a version of the Hayes Code that you can find online. And um, I forget if this is technically the earliest or one of the earliest versions of the code. But again, you know, there were a few different versions of it over those three decades that it was in place, but most of them were very similar is my understanding. I haven't read all of them, so I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that, you know, little details might have been tweaked here and there, but most of it was the same. So the official title is A Code to Govern the Making of Motion Pictures, the Reasons Supporting It, and the Resolution for Uniform Interpretation. And by the way, as I read these excerpts with you, I'm sure I'm going to have a few little side comments at the very least. And I'm going to try and do the thing that I did when I went over the don'ts and the be carefuls, which is not to constantly say quote and end quote, because when you're doing lots of excerpts, You know, I try to do that most of the time when I'm doing history podcasts and I'm directly quoting a source, but when it's something like this where I'm quoting a ton, I think it starts to get kind of clunky and distracting to constantly be saying quote, end quote. And, you know, if I do that, I don't want to worry about forgetting to say quote or end quote and then accidentally, you know, confusing my words with the document's words in ways, you know, in cases where it might not be obvious whose words are what. I'm going to try and indicate with my voice tone when it's me versus the document, and you'll probably be able to follow along. And, you know, I might do the same thing I did with the don'ts and be carefuls as far as just sort of saying, all right, back to the document. I might occasionally also say, this is me talking, or that was me talking, but I'm not going to be rigid on the quote-unquote just for the sake of not being too annoyingly clunky. So, first section. One. Theatrical motion pictures, that is, pictures intended for the theater as distinct from pictures intended for churches, schools, lecture halls, educational movements, social reform movements, etc., are primarily to be regarded as entertainment. Mankind has always recognized the importance of entertainment and its value in rebuilding the bodies and souls of human beings. But it has always recognized that entertainment can be of a character either helpful or harmful to the human race, and in consequence has clearly distinguished between entertainment which tends to improve the race, or at least to recreate and rebuild human beings exhausted with the realities of life, and entertainment which tends to degrade human beings, or to lower their standards of life and living. Hence, the moral importance of entertainment is something which has been universally recognized. So correct entertainment raises the whole standard of a nation. Wrong entertainment lowers the whole living condition and moral ideals of a race. Note, for example, the healthy reactions to healthful moral sports like baseball, golf, the unhealthy reactions to sports like cockfighting, bullfighting, bear-baiting, etc. Note, too, that effect on a nation of gladiatorial combat sports, the obscene plays of Roman times, etc. I'm sure these same do-gooders who wrote this, by the way, were against boxing at the time and would have been among the people against MMA today. Anyway, back to the document. Two, 
Motion pictures are very important as art. Here, as in entertainment, art enters intimately into the lives of human beings. Art can be morally good, lifting men to higher ideals. Art can be morally evil in its effects. This is the case clearly enough with unclean art, indecent books, suggestive drama. Note, it has often been argued that art in itself is unmoral, neither good nor bad. This is perhaps true of the thing, which is music, painting, poetry, etc., but the thing is the product of some person's mind, and that mind was either good or bad morally when it produced the thing, and the thing has its effect upon those who come into contact with it. In both these ways, as a product and the cause of definite effects, it has a deep moral significance and an unmistakable moral quality. Hence, the motion pictures which are most popular of modern arts for the masses have their moral quality from the minds which produce them and from their effects on the moral lives and reactions of their audience. This gives them a most important morality. They reproduce the morality of the men who use the pictures as a medium for the expression of their ideas and ideals. They affect the moral standards of those who, through the screen, take in these ideas and ideals. In the case of the motion pictures, this effect may be particularly emphasized because no art has so quick and so widespread an appeal to the masses. It has become in an incredibly short period, the art of the multitudes. Part 3. The motion picture has special moral obligations. A. Most arts appeal to the mature. This art appeals at once to every class. Mature, immature, developed, undeveloped, law-abiding, criminal... This art of the motion picture, combining as it does the two fundamental appeals of looking at a picture and listening to a story, at once reaches every class of society. B. Because of the mobility of a film and the ease of picture distribution, and because of the possibility of duplicating positives in large quantities, this art reaches places unpenetrated by other forms of art. C. Because of these two facts, it is difficult to produce films intended for only certain classes of people. The exhibitors' theaters are built for the masses, for the cultivated and the rude, mature and immature, self-restrained and inflammatory, young and old, law-respecting and criminal. Films, unlike books and music, can with difficulty be confined to certain selected groups. D. The latitude given to film material cannot, in consequence, be as wide as the latitude given to book material. So, you see, they're saying that because, unlike things like books, there's little to no self-selection of movie-going audiences and much more difficulty in the industry itself trying to restrict their audiences. Therefore, unlike books where you can have, you know, different kinds of books for different kinds of people, movies have to be for everybody. You see, all movies have to be appropriate for everybody. In other words, this code is saying that movies cannot offend anybody. 
They have to be appropriate for everybody from a mentally challenged child to a potentially criminal young man to an elderly woman. That whatever movies Hollywood makes has to equally be appropriate for all of those people and any other you know type of human you could imagine. The 30-year-old housewife. So think about that. All movies have to be for all audiences. No movie can offend anybody or be controversial to anybody. Back to the document, skipping down a little bit to F of this section. This is after they compare film to a few other media, and um, in section F here, they are comparing it to a play. So the document says, everything possible in a play is not possible in a film. So under this, we got lowercase a. Because of the larger audience of the film and its consequently mixed character. Psychologically, the larger the audience, the lower the moral mass resistance to suggestion. Skipping down to lowercase c, the enthusiasm for and interest in the film actors and actresses, developed beyond anything of the sort in history, makes the audience largely sympathetic toward the characters they portray and the stories in which they figure. Hence, they are more ready to confuse the actor and the character, and they are most receptive of the emotions and ideals portrayed and presented by their favorite stars. Uppercase G, small communities remote from sophistication and from the hardening process, which often takes place in the ethical and moral standards of the larger cities, are easily and readily reached by any sort of film. So here they're saying, look, there's films you could show to an audience in, I don't know, New York City, that might not offend anybody there because they're already kind of morally degraded. But if you show them in some small town in Iowa, it might be deeply offensive and problematic for everybody there. And so rather than letting localities make their own decisions about regulations or, heaven forbid, letting individuals make their own consumer choices about what they want to pay money to go see or not, Instead, we're going to force the industry to make movies that won't offend people in Iowa. Because if they won't offend people in small-town Iowa, well, they also equally won't offend people in New York. And notice, there's no real consideration given to how boring and bland and flavorless and predictable and formulaic movies made under these rules will end up being. Skipping down a little bit, they kind of sum up the conclusions of this section, and say, In general, the mobility, popularity, accessibility, emotional appeal, vividness, straightforward presentation of fact in the films makes for intimate contact on a larger audience and greater emotional appeal. Hence, the larger moral responsibilities of the motion pictures. So, I mentioned before that kind of the earliest drafts of this code had two parts. This version actually has three. And they go progressively from kind of zoomed out the most to zoomed in the most as far as the rules. So the first section, which I just finished sharing parts of with you, is called general principles. What I'm about to get into now, the second section is called working principles. They get a little more specific. And then there's an addendum that gets more specific still. So second section, working principles. One. No picture should lower the moral standards of those who see it. This is done 
A. When evil is made to appear attractive and good is made to appear unattractive. B. When the sympathy of the audience is thrown on the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, sin. The same thing is true of a film that would throw sympathy against goodness, honor, innocence, purity, honesty. Note, sympathy with a person who sins is not the same as sympathy with the sin or crime of which he is guilty. So, by the way, notice the Catholic influence, I think, here is one of the many places you can see it is, you know, this mantra of hate the sin but love the sinner. Skipping down just a few lines, the presentation of evil is often essential for art or fiction or drama. This in itself is not wrong, provided A, that evil is not presented alluringly, B, that throughout the presentation, evil and good are never confused. Ah, you see? No moral grayness, no ambiguity, no subtlety, no nuance. Where do we see that being a requirement of media produced in our time? Back to the document. See that in the end, the audience feels that evil is wrong and good is right. 2. Law, natural or divine, must not be belittled, ridiculed, nor must a sentiment be created against it. A. The presentation of crimes must not throw sympathy with the criminal as against the law, nor with the crime as against those who must punish it. So I guess that means you can never portray law enforcement or the quote-unquote justice system as being wrong, corrupt, being abused by some people in it. Back to the document. B. The courts of the land should not be presented as unjust. Skipping down a little bit to the next big heading. Principles of plot. In accordance with the general principles laid down. 1. No plot theme should definitely side with evil and against good. 2. Comedies and farces should not make fun of good, innocence, morality, or justice. So I guess they can never be funny, or virtually never. Other than, like, mindless dumb shit like people throwing pies in each other's faces or something like that. Back to the document 3. No plot should be so constructed as to leave the question of right or wrong in doubt or fogged. Ah, there it is again. Absolute, unquestionable, unsubtle, Manichaean pure good and pure evil is the only way you're allowed to ever approach anything. Where do we see that tendency in our own time being portrayed and being rigidly required? Oh, I don't know. 4. No plot should, by its treatment, throw the sympathy of the audience with sin, crime, wrongdoing, or evil. 5. No plot should present evil alluringly. Next heading. Serious film drama. 1. As stated in the general principles, sin and evil enter into the story of human beings, and hence in themselves are dramatic material. Well, that's nice of them to acknowledge. 2. 
In the use of this material, it must be distinguished between sin, which by its very nature repels, and sin, which by its nature attracts. A. In the first class comes murder, most theft, most legal crimes, lying, hypocrisy, cruelty, etc. B. In the second class, meaning these are the sins which by their nature attract. In the second class come sex sins, sins and crimes of apparent heroism, such as banditry, daring thefts, leadership in evil, organized crime, revenge, etc. The first class needs little care in handling as sins and crimes of this class naturally are unattractive. The second class needs real care in handling, as the response of human nature to their appeal is obvious. This is treated more fully below. 3. A careful distinction can be made between films intended for general distribution and films intended for use in theaters restricted to a limited audience. Skipping down a little bit under the heading Plot Material. 1. The triangle, that is, the love of a third party by one already married, needs careful handling, if marriage, the sanctity of the home, and sex morality are not to be imperiled. 2. Adultery as a subject should be avoided. A. It is never a fit subject for comedy. Through comedy of this sort, ridicule is thrown on the essential relationships of home and family and marriage, and illicit relationships are made to seem permissible and either delightful or daring. B. Sometimes adultery must be counted on as material occurring in serious drama. In this case, 1. It should not appear to be justified. 2. It should not be used to weaken respect for marriage. 3. It should not be presented as attractive or alluring. Next big number 3 says, Seduction and rape are difficult subjects and bad material from the viewpoint of the general audience in the theater. And among the things they say below that about seduction and rape are things like, where essential to the plot, they must not be more than suggested. Even the struggles preceding rape should not be shown. The methods by which seduction, essential to the plot, is attained should not be explicit or represented in detail, where there is likelihood of arousing wrongful emotions on the part of the audience. So first off, notice in this section they're almost equating seduction and rape which is kind of interesting and has its echoes and aspects of modern wokist ideology. And they're saying that even in the case of seduction, you can't actually portray it in any way because the audience will then, you know, have their wrongful emotions aroused. So notice this paternalism on the part of the censors and the infantilization of potential audiences. Oh, we can't deal with issues and problems in complex, sophisticated, nuanced, ambiguous sorts of ways because our childlike audience of morons, as they said earlier in the document, as they would have said at that time, simply can't handle it. Number four, scenes of passion are sometimes necessary for the plot. However, A, they should appear only where necessary and not as an added stimulus to the emotions of the audience because after all, the audience are a bunch of mentally and emotionally deranged children, so we have to treat them as such, of course. Those are my words. B. When it is not essential to the plot, they should not occur. C. 
they must not be explicit. It's amazing how many of these words, and I'm trying to convey it in my voice, but it's amazing how many of these words are in italics to like really be like, like in that last sentence, both the word not and the word explicit were italicized. So they must not be explicit in action nor vivid in method, e.g. by handling of the body, by lustful and prolonged kissing, by evidently lustful embraces, by positions which strongly arouse passions. D. In general, where essential to the plot, scenes of passion should not be presented in such a way as to arouse or excite the passions of the ordinary spectator. And in the sentence I just finished, the entire part of it that is arouse or excite the passions of the ordinary spectator, that entire part of that sentence is italicized. Five, sexual immorality is sometimes necessary for the plot. It is subject to the following. And then there's this little subheading, general principles regarding plots dealing with sex, passion, and incidents related to them. It says, All legislators have recognized clearly that there are in normal human beings emotions which react naturally and spontaneously to the presentation of certain definite manifestations of sex and passion. A. The presentation of scenes, episodes, plots, etc., which are deliberately meant to excite these manifestations on the part of the audience is always wrong, is subversive to the interests of society, and a peril to the human race. Yeah, that's how dramatic they're being. They are saying that the presentation, this is their words, I'll repeat this because it's just, you know, so hysterical. The presentation of scenes, episodes, plots, etc., which are deliberately meant to excite these manifestations on the part of the audience is always wrong, is subversive to the interest of society, and a peril to the human race. Wow. B. Sex and passion exist and consequently must sometimes enter into the stories which deal with human beings. Under that, it says, 1. The love of a man for a woman permitted by the law of God and man is the rightful subject of plots. The passions arising from this love is not the subject for plots. So they're saying the the love of this very conventional, you know, traditional kind of Christian definition, the love there is okay, but the passion that arises from even wholesome love that would be approved by, you know, St. Augustine, the passion therein is still bad to put in a movie. So you can show like a conventional husband and wife who love each other, but you can't show them exhibiting any passion for each other that might be derived from that love. If you've ever watched the dialogue and scenes, you know, between like a husband and wife as depicted in a Hollywood movie from the 40s and 50s and wondered why, like, you rarely get the sense that these two people ever have fucked each other even though they might be depicted as having a bunch of kids? This is why. Back to the document. Two, impure love, the love of man and woman forbidden by human and divine law, must be presented in such a way that A, it is clearly known by the audience to be wrong, B, its presentation does not excite sexual reactions, mental or physical, in an ordinary audience, C, it is not treated as manner for comedy. 
And it's almost as if St. Augustine of Hippo himself wrote a lot of these rules dealing with sexuality. Back to the document after that, it says, Hence, even within the limits of pure love, certain facts have been universally regarded by lawmakers as outside the limits of safe presentation. These are the manifestations of passion and the sacred intimacies of private life. One, either before marriage in the courtship of decent people, two, or after marriage, as is perfectly clear. In the case of pure love, the difficulty is not so much about what details are permitted for presentation. This is perfectly clear in most cases. The difficulty concerns itself with the tact, delicacy, and general regard for propriety manifested in their presentation. But in the case of impure love, the love which society has always regarded as wrong, and which has been banned by divine law, the following are important. 1. It must not be the subject of comedy or farce or treated as the material for laughter. 2. It must not be presented as attractive and beautiful. 3. It must not be presented in such a way as to arouse passion or morbid curiosity on the part of the audience. 4. It must not be made to seem right and permissible. 5. In general, it must not be detailed in method or manner. 6. The presentation of murder is often necessary for the carrying out of the plot. However, A. Frequent presentation of murder tends to lessen regard for the sacredness of life. B. Brutal killing should not be presented in detail. C. Killings for revenge should not be justified, i.e. the hero should not take justice into his own hands in such a way as to make his killings seem justified. This does not refer to killings in self-defense. D. Dueling should not be presented as right or just. 7. Crimes against the law naturally occur in the course of film stories. However, A. Criminals should not be made heroes, even if they are historical criminals. B. Law and justice must not, by the treatment they receive from criminals, be made to seem wrong or ridiculous. C. Methods of committing crime, e.g. burglary, should not be so explicit as to teach the audience how crime can be committed. That is, the film should not serve as a possible school in crime methods for those who, seeing the methods, might use them. D. Crime need not always be punished as long as the audience is made to know that it is wrong. Then we have the all-caps heading, Details of Plot, Episode, and Treatment, and then under it the first subheading is Vulgarity. It says, Vulgarity may be carefully distinguished from obscenity. Vulgarity is the treatment of low, disgusting, unpleasant subjects which decent society considers outlawed from normal conversation. A little ways down, it gives a little bit of detail on this. 1. Oaths should never be used as a comedy element. Where required by the plot, the less offensive oaths may be permitted. 2. Vulgar expressions come under the same treatment as vulgarity in general, where women and children are to see the film. Vulgar expressions and oaths should be cut to the absolute essentials required by the situation. 3. The name of Jesus Christ should never be used except in reverence. Next subheading is obscenity, and it says obscenity is concerned with immorality, but has the additional connotation of being common, vulgar, and coarse. 
One, obscenity in fact, that is, in spoken word, gesture, episode, plot, is against divine and human law, and hence altogether outside the range of subject matter or treatment. Two, obscenity should not be suggested by gesture, manner, etc. So I guess no, you know, flipping the bird or whatever. Three, an obscene reference, even if it is expected to be understandable only to the more sophisticated part of the audience, should not be introduced. Four, obscene language is treated as all obscenity. The next subheading is costume. And under that, it says general principles. One, the effect of nudity or semi-nudity upon the normal man or woman, and much more upon the young person, has been honestly recognized by all lawmakers and moralists. Two, hence the fact that the nude or semi-nude body may be beautiful does not make its use in the films moral. Three, nudity or semi-nudity used simply to put a punch into a picture comes under the head of immoral action as treated above. It is immoral in its effect upon the average audience. Four, nudity or semi-nudity is sometimes apparently necessary for the plot. Nudity is never permitted. That entire sentence is in italics, by the way. Semi-nudity may be permitted under conditions. Next subheading says particular principles. 1. The more intimate parts of the human body are the male and female organs and the breasts of a woman. A. They should never be uncovered. And never be uncovered is all in italics. B. They should not be covered with transparent or translucent material. C. They should not be clearly and unmistakably outlined by the garment. 2. The less intimate parts of the body, the legs, arms, shoulders, and back, are less certain of causing reaction on the part of the audience. Hence, A. Exposure necessary for the plot is permitted. B. Exposure for the sake of exposure, or the quote-unquote punch, is wrong. C. Scenes of undressing should be avoided. D. The manner or treatment of exposure should not be suggestive or indecent. And then skipping down to the next subheading is dancing. Under that, number one says, Dancing in general is recognized as an art and a beautiful form of expressing human emotion. Two. Obscene dances are those, A, which suggest or represent sexual actions, whether performed solo or with two or more. So, man, if She-Hulk had been made back then, no twerking for her, huh? Back to the document, B, and again, these are listing obscene dances, B, which are designed to excite an audience, or to arouse passions, or to cause physical excitement. Hence, Dances of the type known as cooch or can-can, since they violate decency in these two ways, are wrong. Dances with movements of the breasts, excessive body movements while the feet remain stationary, the so-called belly dances. These dances are immoral, obscene, and hence altogether wrong. So isn't this great that there were do-gooder moral police to micromanage what dance moves are and are not allowed in movies? And just in general, kind of big picture, doesn't this show you that you don't just have to worry about censorship and thought control coming directly from the state? That when giant corporations 
in a cartelized industry collude together to foist similar or identical codes of self-censorship upon their industry? That this is not a good thing? Big tech, I'm looking in your direction. Especially you, social media companies. Skipping down a little bit to the subheading, Religion. It says, one, no film or episode in a film should be allowed to throw ridicule on any religious faith honestly maintained. Two, ministers of religion in their characters or ministers should not be used in comedy as villains or as unpleasant persons. Note, the reason for this is not that there are not such ministers of religion, but because the attitude toward them tends to be an attitude toward religion in general. Religion is lowered in the minds of the audience because it lowers their respect for the ministers. 3. Ceremonies of any definite religion should be supervised by someone thoroughly conversant with that religion. And then skipping ahead to the appendix of this version of the Hayes Code. It starts off with what they call, in their own words, a brief restatement of the general principles. 1. No picture shall be produced which will lower the moral standards of those who see it, hence the sympathy of the audience shall never be thrown to the side of crime, wrongdoing, evil, or sin. 2. Correct standards of life, subject only to the requirements of drama and entertainment, shall be presented. 3. Law, natural or human, shall not be ridiculed, nor shall sympathy be created for its violation. And then under that, there's a big heading, all caps, particular applications. 1. Crimes against the law. These shall never be presented in such a way as to throw sympathy with the crime as against law and justice, or to inspire others with a desire for imitation. The treatment of crimes against the law must not a. teach methods of crime, b. inspire potential criminals with a desire for imitation, c. make criminals seem heroic and justified. And then it has headings for specific types of crime, starting off with murder, and it basically reiterates the stuff I already mentioned before about murder, including things like revenge shall not be justified, although here it clarifies and says revenge in modern times shall not be justified. and says, in lands and ages of less developed civilization and moral principles, revenge may sometimes be presented. This would be the case, especially in places where no law exists, to cover the crime because of which revenge is committed. So I guess, I don't know if you're showing like a caveman situation where a caveman uh, has a family member get murdered, that the caveman could then kill somebody for revenge because no formal law and order existed yet. But, you know, where do you draw the line, right? Because you could make an argument that many places in medieval Europe didn't really have that much formal law and order, and yet in a way they often kind of did, and it's sort of a gray area, right? So, you know. Anyway, it again reiterates with more detail that methods of crime shall not be explicitly presented, and then there's an interesting one, um, some interesting sections for drugs and alcohol. So, three, illegal drug traffic must never be presented. Because of its evil consequences, the drug traffic should never be presented in any form. The existence of the trade should not be brought to the attention of audiences. So, you're just not allowed to show it at all even if it's clearly, you know, the bad guys doing it and they get caught and punished. You just can't show it at all. And then section four here on the use of liquor is interesting. It says, 
The use of liquor in American life, when not required by the plot or for proper characterization, should not be shown. The use of liquor should never be excessively presented, even in picturing countries where its use is legal. In scenes from American life, the necessities of plot and proper characterization alone justify its use, and in this case, it should be shown with moderation. So, how do you make that work, right? I'm assuming if liquor is an important part of plot or characterization, one very likely instance where that might be true is if you're trying to depict somebody as being, you know, a drunk, an alcoholic, and presumably to be kosher with this code, you would have to clearly show that person to be bad or wrong or morally flawed or whatever, but then it should be shown with moderation. So I guess in that case, if you do decide to depict a character as being a drunk or an alcoholic, you have to show them being drunk, but only show them drinking a little bit. So I don't know. I I guess the conclusion is that they've just got really low tolerance. The next subheading is sex. And as you might expect, The stuff there mostly reiterates the stuff about sex and things like marriage that we already went over. Um, It starts off saying, The sanctity of the institution of marriage and the home shall be upheld. Then it goes on in subheadings under this to say similar things as previously about adultery, love triangles, etc. It also has stuff, again, reiterating the idea that anything that potentially might arouse passions on the part of the audience is bad. And it says of these things that might arouse passions, things like, for example, excessive and lustful kissing, lustful embraces, suggestive postures and gestures are not to be shown. In general, passion should be so treated that these scenes do not stimulate the lower and baser element. Part three under sex, by the way, is seduction or rape. Again, notice those two things being at least partially conflated with each other. And it says, A, they should never be more than suggested and only when essential for the plot, and even then never shown by explicit method. B, they are never the proper subject for comedy. 4. Sex perversion or any inference to it is forbidden. 5. White slavery shall not be treated. Well, I guess black slavery is still okay, right? 6. Miscegenation, parentheses, sex relationship between the white and black races, is forbidden. So, they're putting interracial relationships in basically the same category as seduction or rape, sex perversion, white slavery, etc. So, yeah. Maybe nobody should have the power to censor something like the film industry. Because the left-wing Wokies of today who want to censor it informally in their way, they, of course, would be horrified at aspects of this, particularly things like the prohibition on depicting interracial relationships, which, by the way, I would agree with them that, you know, it should be perfectly fine if someone writing or making a movie wants to have an interracial couple being depicted or whatever should be totally allowed. But, you know, this is the whole idea of you should be in favor of free speech and expression. Even for speech and expression that, you know, you may not like, because if you allow it to exist, if you allow the institutions and rules to be constructed to censor something like film, even if the rules 
initially are rules that you agree with, who's to say that down the road, the rules won't be changed to ones you don't agree with? And then the last three things under sex that it says you're not allowed to depict, it says, seven, sex hygiene and venereal diseases are not subject for motion pictures. Eight, scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette are never to be presented. And nine, children's sex organs are never to be exposed. Now, for me personally, I'm okay with those last three rules. I don't want to see a movie that's, you know, literally showing someone's VD. Personally, I mean, you know, people have different opinions on this, and I honestly, I would not be in favor of formal censorship of this, but just personally, I'd rather not watch, you know, childbirth in a movie being explicitly depicted. Um, you know, that's just me. And uh, I think the vast majority of people would be fine with some sort of a general rule saying, yeah, uh, don't expose child sex organs in films. Although I wonder about some of the people involved in the industry today, whether uh, some of them might not be vehemently opposed to that last rule. The next three headings are vulgarity, obscenity, and profanity, which I always thought were basically synonyms, but apparently not. They differentiate between vulgarity, obscenity, and profanity, and so under vulgarity they say, the treatment of low, disgusting, unpleasant, though not necessarily evil subjects, should be subject always to the dictate of good taste, which is totally subjective, by the way, and a regard for the sensibilities of the audience. 4. Obscenity. Obscenity in word, gesture, reference, song, joke, or by suggestion, even when likely to be understood only by part of the audience, is forbidden. And then profanity. It says, pointed profanity, this includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless used reverently, hell, S-O-B, damn, and God, spelled G-A-W-D, I guess, again, New Yorker God, God, or every other profane or vulgar expression, however used, is forbidden. Then they also have another section here, as in the previous part about costume, again saying complete nudity never allowed, no undressing scenes, and that any dancing costumes, in their words, quote, intended to permit undue exposure or indecent movements in the dance are forbidden. 7. Dances Dances suggesting or representing sexual actions or indecent passion are forbidden. Dances which emphasize indecent movements are to be regarded as obscene. Section 8. Religion. 1. No film or episode may throw ridicule on any religious faith. 2. Ministers of religion in their character as ministers of religion should not be used as comic characters or villains. 3. Ceremonies of any definite religion should be carefully and respectfully handled. Section 9. Locations. Certain places are so closely and thoroughly associated with sexual life or with sexual sin that their use must be carefully limited. Brothels and houses of ill fame are not proper locations for drama. Section 10. National Feelings. The just rights, history, and feelings of any nation are entitled to consideration and respectful treatment. 1. The use of the flag should be consistently respectful. 2. The history, institutions, prominent people, and citizenry of other nations shall be respected fairly. By the way, I wonder how this went. You know, this was being written in, like, the early 30s. Uh, I wonder if this applied to, I don't know, Hitler and the Nazis, right? Somehow I doubt that this rule was enforced really strongly in regard to depictions of them, if there even were any, other than in quote-unquote newsreels. 
And then section 11, titles. Very uh, concise here. It says, salacious, indecent, or obscene titles shall not be used. And then there's another appendix to this version of the code with some amendments, which... Honestly, I don't see how much of these are really amendments other than maybe adding a little bit of detail to some of the stuff that I've already covered. But there is one interesting part here that adds a lot in regard to crime being depicted. And I guess this was because at the time, you know, like gangster movies and hard-boiled noir type movies were popular. So I'm going to skip down to section four. Regulations regarding crime in motion pictures, and honestly, the first few things under that are, in my opinion, just reiterations of previous stuff. But skipping down to number four here, this is where they start to kind of add a bit. It says, because of the alarming increase in the number of films in which murder is frequently committed, action showing the taking of human life, even in mystery stories, is to be cut to the minimum. These frequent presentations of murder tend to lessen regard for the sacredness of life. 5. Suicide as a solution of problems occurring in the development of screen drama is to be discouraged as morally questionable and as bad theater, unless absolutely necessary for the development of the plot. 6. There must be no display at any time of machine guns, submachine guns, or other weapons generally classified as illegal weapons in the hands of gangsters or other criminals, and there are to be no offstage sounds or repercussions of these guns. This means that even where the machine guns or other prohibited weapons are not shown, the effect of shots coming from these guns must be cut to a minimum. So even hearing the sound of machine guns is bad. Number seven, there must be no new, unique, or trick methods of concealing of guns shown at any time. So I guess no, like, you know, fancy spring-loaded sleeve holster that puts the gun in your hand, you know, like that or whatever. Eight, the flaunting of weapons by gangsters or other criminals will not be allowed. So if you're making a gangster movie... You can't have the gangster, like, brandishing their gun. I mean, this is just, you know, absurd. 9. All discussions and dialogue on the part of gangsters regarding guns should be cut to the minimum. 10. There must be no scenes at any time showing law enforcement officers dying at the hands of criminals. This includes private detectives and guards for banks, motor trucks, etc., 11. With special reference to the crime of kidnapping or illegal abduction, it has been our policy to mark such stories as acceptable under the code only when the kidnapping or abduction is A. Not the main theme of the story. B. The person kidnapped is not a child. C. There are no details of the crime of kidnapping. D. No profit accrues to the abductors or kidnappers. And E. Where the kidnappers are punished.
for a variety of reasons, by the mid-60s, every year, a little bit more and a little bit more of American films were being produced without the motion picture production code seal of approval. And increasingly, the movies that were being made without adhering to those rigid rules were more and more interesting and more and more successful. And so for those, plus some kind of like corporate politics things going on in terms of the companies that owned the big studios at the time, by kind of like 1965, 66, things were starting to open up as far as creative freedom in the film industry. And by the late 60s, the motion picture production code was pretty much kaput. And pretty much simultaneous with this, for obvious reasons, was the so-called New Hollywood Movement, which is widely considered to be the greatest era of American film overall that's ever happened. Movies suddenly got way more creative and way more interesting. And so this is where, you know, a lot of the people we think of as the greatest and or most interesting directors, and especially a lot of those that are like really auteurs, because with the ending of the code and with, for kind of inside baseball business reasons, a lot of Hollywood studios in the late 60s and throughout the 70s being more willing to give directors and producers freer hands in terms of how they made things, things just got more interesting. So just some of the directors we associate with the new Hollywood era, and obviously some of these are people who continued to make movies into the 80s, 90s, and beyond in some cases, but people like Woody Allen, people like Mel Brooks, people like John Carpenter, people like Francis Ford Coppola, Wes Craven, Brian De Palma, Toby Hooper, Stanley Kubrick, George Lucas, John Milius, Sam Peckinpah, Roman Polanski, Sidney Pollock, George Romero, Martin Scorsese, Don Siegel, Steven Spielberg, and many, many others. These are all people, some of them had already been making movies before the code went away, but pretty much all of them would have found it extremely difficult to impossible to do their best work had the code still been dominating the American film industry in the 70s and into the 80s. And just a few of the kind of notable movies that are considered part of the new Hollywood. And again, we're talking from late 60s into early 80s would include movies like Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, In Cold Blood, Cool Hand Luke, The Dirty Dozen, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, The Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, M.A.S.H., A Clockwork Orange, Dirty Harry, Deliverance, The Godfather, The Exorcist, The Sting, Chinatown, The Godfather Part Two, Blazing Saddles, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Death Wish, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Dog Day Afternoon, Three Days of the Condor, Jaws, Carrie, The Omen, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Assault on Precinct 13, Rocky, Taxi Driver, Star Wars, 
The Deer Hunter, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, National Lampoon's Animal House, Dawn of the Dead, Halloween, Alien, Apocalypse Now, The Shining, Raging Bull, The Empire Strikes Back, History of the World Part 1, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Blade Runner. I mean, it's pretty obvious that the heyday of kind of the aftermath of the end of the Hays Code was just arguably the most interesting and creatively awesome period in American filmmaking, with a few other eras since being the only times that really give it a run for its money. Like some would argue, kind of the late 90s, early 80s was another maybe briefer period where film got very interesting and creative. Now, did crappy movies come out? In the aftermath of the Hays Code? Yeah, but the number and proportion of really good movies that are still considered timeless classics that people love today was way higher during the new Hollywood era after the code was done away with than it was, say, in the 40s or 50s or early 60s, where most of the movies were quite forgettable and bland and boring and no one cares, with the occasional rare exception. And most, if not all, of the movies I just listed, and we could list, you know, at least a hundred more, if not more than that. But most, if not all, of the movies I just listed were movies that would be difficult to impossible to make under the rigid straitjacket of censorship imposed by the Hayes Code. So anyway, in the mid to late 60s, the number of films being produced not pursuant to the Hayes Code was gradually increasing year to year, and by the time you get to 1968, the code is no longer terribly important or relevant to a lot of big Hollywood films, and so it was basically done away with that year, and the Motion Picture Production Association, or whatever it was called that year, replaced the old Hayes Code with the rating system, which eventually evolved into what we know today, you know, of G, PG, PG-13, R, NC-17, those weren't the original ratings, but, you know, they've been added to and modified over time. And for sure, there's a lot of things to criticize in various ways about that rating system, but I think most people would agree that it's preferable to just the one-size-fits-all haze code for all motion pictures. That it's better to just, you know, give potential consumers some sense of where the film is at in terms of potentially controversial topics or depictions and allow them to make their own choices and to maybe have certain categories that, you know, minors can't get into without a parent accompanying them or whatever. Like, that's all much more reasonable and less restrictive because people can still make controversial movies, but then people who want to avoid controversial movies can just, you know, look at the rating and not go there or whatever. And so from the end of the Hayes Code until, oh, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, films were relatively free. And yeah, they got rated and all that, but, you know, there wasn't huge restriction, industry-wide anyway, about the types of content that could be covered and how it could be covered and so forth. Now, there definitely were periods, say, in between the early 80s and the 80s, there were periods where film would be less interesting and less creative, and usually that had more to do with just the corporate politics of the big studios, where, you know, it kind of ebbed and flowed from the 80s through the 80s in terms of, you'd have several years where directors had a bit more of a free hand, 
and several years where directors had a bit less of a free hand. But in general, the industry had more mid-sized and small production companies and so forth. And it was less centrally controlled by just a few corporations than it is now in our time. And so, yeah, you know, you would have movies with ideological points of view, and Hollywood has always tended to be left of center. But that said, from the 70s through the 80s, there was some variety. You know, people who were well outside the typical Hollywood mindset, people like John Milius or people like Clint Eastwood, could still make movies and make it their way. And while there still are some old-timey writers and directors around who are still able to make movies their way, even under the new Hayes Code, it's difficult to impossible for new writers and directors right now, I think, to get their movies made if they don't rigidly conform to the ideological orthodoxy. So, stay tuned. The next installment for this series, which may or may not be the next DHP episode, because I've got several things in the works right now, including the next Woodrow Wilson episode that I've already recorded some segments for, but still have a lot to do, and some other episodes I've got in various stages of planning and production. You know, one or more of those might come out before I do part two of this series and cover my take on the new Hayes Code. But either way, you'll be hearing part two of this little two-part miniseries pretty soon. And in general, this month, I'm trying to really start to ramp up just my overall content output. August and September, I was sidetracked and bogged down with all kinds of miscellaneous nuts and bolts things, which still isn't totally over, but I've made at least enough of a dent in all the work required for my transition to being full-time independent that I think October is going to be when I'm really able to reap the fruits and share them with you of my newfound independence in terms of just overall amount of output. So stay tuned. And again, I really hope you'll consider if you're not already a supporter of the show and you like what I do, consider supporting it via Patreon or Subscribestar. And again, there's, you know, new benefits and levels of support over what I used to offer previously. And all those goodies are going to increase. You know, I'm going to make bonus episodes. I can't say I'll make them super frequently, but I'll definitely make them more frequently than I have been. And again, there's the possibility of live streams, book club, me starting to put out Dangerous History Lyceum lectures, at least semi-regularly. All those things are in the works, so I hope you'll consider supporting the show if you like what I do and you're not already a supporter. And if you are a supporter and are willing and able to and want to take advantage of some of these other benefits, maybe consider increasing your level of support if you're at one of the lower levels. And to those who already do support me, either on a regular basis and or who contributed to the Indiegogo campaign, again, I can't thank you enough. You make all of this possible. So thank you, dear listener. Take care, and I'll talk to you again soon.